in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome to episode 28 of Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this show is Roman Britain's Missing Legion. On the show, we have Simon Elliott, writer, historian, archaeologist, and honorary research fellow at the University of Kent, where he studied for his PhD in archaeology on the subject of the Roman military in Britain. He also has an MA in War Studies from King's College London and an MA in Archaeology from University College London. He frequently gives talks on Roman themes and is co-director at a Roman villa excavation now taking place in England. Simon has a new book titled Roman Britain's Missing Legion, What Really Happened to the Ninth Hispania? This subject is hot. It has all the elements of a good mystery. Humanity, and I'm willing to debate you on this, is hardwired for the mysterious. I want you to think about something. The average size of a legion, especially during imperial times, was approximately 5,500 infantry, more or less. That is a lot of people to go missing. If that happened today, you have to imagine the impact of such an event. Can you even conceive of it? Just think about it. An American division is composed of ten to 15,000 soldiers. Imagine they were airlifted into a country, made ready, supplied, and convoyed into the interior of a country, and then disappeared. The aftermath would be felt in the American psyche for generations. The question of their disappearance would be brought up in military doctrine for years to come. The first seven words of Simon's book says it all. This book is an historical detective story. As for the Ninth Legion Espana, we are in the realm of speculation. The facts are sparse. Eyewitnesses are non-existent, but there are accounts only way after the fact. The term, the fog of war, applies, though not said exactly the way the originator said it, Karl von Clausewitz, a Prussian analyst. It clearly defines the uncertainty of battle. I would humbly suggest that this subject is clearly defined by this term, the fog of time. As Khaled Husseini, author of the book The Kite Runner, wrote, Time can be a greedy thing. Sometimes it steals the details for itself. What happened to the Ninth Espana happened a long time ago. It is not easy. None of this is easy. All that is left is speculation. Even metal detectorists have failed to find that telltale battlefield. Fiction takes up the slack, though, where history fails or cannot go. The fiction writer can travel in the mind's eye for an easy explanation, such as a legion being wiped out by the Picts. 
for the Scots, whether Celt or Gaul, to believe that this ancestral tribe had destroyed the invader is almost patriotic. The Eagle of the Ninth, published in 1954, can fix our beliefs to the Ninth España fate. To see a movie with Tatum Channing can do the same. Movies and historical fiction are powerful, and Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall is a testament to what we would have liked to have heard while listening through keyholes at Hampton Court. I want you to know that this is not a review of Simon Elliott's book. If the subject interests you, it's readily available on Amazon. Buy it and tell us what you think. What I want you to know is that his case study has created some controversy, and I'm not sure why. Elliot lays out the facts and tries to come to some sort of conclusion, of which there seems to be several. Any modern detective would do the same, depending on the evidence. It seems he has gotten some flack on social media simply because he made the attempt to explain the disappearance. How many authors can brag that an academic wrote a letter to the Times in protest? I think there will be more than a few seats filled at the University of Reading due to Simon Elliott's literary work. I think the criticism is unfair. We all want to know what happened. Elliott's book is not the first, nor will it be the last. And until they find that battlefield filled with skeletons and armor, or the discharge papers for the veterans of the España, we may never know. What I do know is that this subject, this mystery, this cold case, will be the subject for study for many years to come. Elliot's critics seem to be from people that have the qualifications to look into this mystery. Many are qualified to make the study just as well as he. Good. The disappearance of the España needs to be talked about, argued, debated, and researched. Elliot has made people interested in this. Layman and academic want to know. Elliot has breathed life into those shield carriers that marched bravely into the swirling mists of Caledonia so many years ago. What I admire about Simon Elliot is that he is a rock star when it comes to the ancient world. His books covers ancient armies and emperors of that era. He is tall, imposing, and ready to talk about the subject, not as lecture, but a living, breathing history. He has a background in public relations, runs his own company, I hear, and why should he not use those skills to promote the study of the ancient world? Someone has to do it. His opinion, his mythology, is ripe for the task. I would elect him a spokesperson for the ancient world. Someone has to communicate the excitement and importance of those times to our modern world. More importantly, the relevancy. Too many stories have hit the news of universities dropping the classics in archaeology as a course of study. This is tragic. In the 70s, Carl Sagan was the communicator for the wonders of the universe, with him speaking of the billions and billions of stars that made up the cosmos through his award-winning television show. Recently, that mantle has been taken up by Neil deGrasse Tyson, the American astrophysicist, planetary scientist, author, and science communicator. 
For the amenities, there has to be those individuals that define the field, break it down, and make the public understand how it is relevant to their lives. There has to be a cheerleader for the acceptance of history and archaeology to be as important as the scores of your favorite football team. Like Sir David Attenborough, who speaks for planet Earth, what person is ready to speak for those long gone in our ancient past? I nominate Simon Elliot. Well, someone that is president of the Society of Ancients, an international nonprofit that aims to promote interest in ancient and medieval history through wargaming, has my vote. As a former journalist on a defense magazine and a Public Relations Week Award winner, he has my vote. Simon is educated in archaeology, he has done the fieldwork, and studied the art of war. Mary Beard may already speak for the classical world, but who is there to speak for those unnamed shield carriers that slogged across their world and into the mists of Caledonia to never return. Simon? Well, the Ninth Legion is one of those, it's one of the great mysteries of not only the ancient world, but sort of world history, really. You've got 5,500 men who disappear. It's like a science fiction program. They, it's unheard of, you know, at any one time in the Roman world, there are 30-odd legions. We know what happened to every single Roman legion. But at the time, at the time when, for example... Um, Augustus, uh, then Octavian, um, won the final round of civil wars in the very late Republic. He actually inherited 60 legions. So for those 60 he inherited, for the 30 uh, of the later of, of the um, empire as it was later, we know what happened to all of them, but we don't know what happened to this one, the Ninth Legion. It completely disappears from history. So <clears throat> it's a huge sort of like detective story for me, trying to work out what really happened to it. And also, it's a change for me because most of my history writing, I've written 12 books now, is narrative history, looking at themes across a chronology. But this isn't really. This is actually a completely different approach. What we're doing is we're looking at threads to pull from the historical record here and there, from the archaeological record here and there, all of which then comes towards a sort of a body of data, a body of evidence, which enables you to sort of pursue this detective story. So it really is a fantastic historical detective story. When you're looking at events in the in the ancient world, the classical world or the or, or earlier, you're looking at broadly sort of like four main sources of evidence. You're looking at the historical record. Uh, you're looking at the archaeological record. You're looking at analogy. So you're looking at how things happened elsewhere that could show you what happened to something. Or you're looking at anecdotes, you know, what kind of things are most likely. So a lot of this is common sense. So to start with the historical record, there's lots written about the Ninth Legion. We know when it started. We know where it fought. We know where it was based. We know where it was recruited. We know under whom it served. We know the names of some of the uh, troops who served with it. We just don't know, what, don't know what happened to it. Okay, so there's the historical record. Then you have the archaeological record, and again, you get exactly the same kind of insight where it was based based on things like um, um, uh, inscriptions, who served in it in terms of funerary monuments. But again, it stops dead. Okay. Then you've got analogy looking at um, where 
there was the opportunity for it to have fought with other military units where we know there was sort of a sanguineous loss of life. And finally, you have anecdote, you know, where was it most likely to have been towards the end of its existence? And that's what you pull all together. And it's from that, what I, from that, that I came up with these four broad hypotheses, which I pursue in the book, that it was lost in the north of Britain, lost in the south of Britain, lost on the Rhine and Danube, or lost in the east. Basically, the Romans were completely OCD in the way that they recorded things. They liked to, they, they lived in a world of order. And, and part of their world of order was writing things down and detailing where things were. The emperor needed to know exactly where all his resources were across the empire because he was dealing with multi, multi, multiple um, issues at all times, whether it's an external threat or an internal threat. Um, so therefore, the key key dates are very important, actually, in the story of the Ninth Legion, and the key dates are as follows. The last time it's mentioned at all in history is in 82 uh, AD, which is by Tacitus talking about Agricola's campaigns at the time in what is now modern Scotland. And that's, by the way, interesting because... On that occasion, the Legion almost gets overrun in its marching camp by a night attack by the native Britons. And Agricola claims that he only just saved the day. Uh, it's then last mentioned in epigraphy, i.e. in an inscription in AD 108, which is from a gateway in York, which says basically the Ninth Legion was here, we built this gate. After that, it's never mentioned again. Last mentioned in history... AD 82, last mentioned in epigraphy, AD 108. And then in AD 122, Hadrian arrives in Britain with a new legion, six Victrix, which he installs in York in the former home, the legionary fortress, the former home of the Ninth Legion. So it's not there anymore. And at the same time, Hadrian orders all the military units in Britain to start building Hadrian's Wall, all of whom leave an inscription saying we was here and there's no inscription from the Ninth Legion, so it wasn't there. And finally, in AD 168, a column is erected in Rome which lists all of the extant legions of the day in this list. And one notably missing is the Ninth Legion. So from that... It disappeared completely between AD 108, the last, last mentioned in epigraphy, and AD 168, the list of legions. And within that, almost certainly much earlier in the range, before 122, when Hadrian arrives in Britain and replaces it. Well, so, so the historiography is very important here. So the, 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 the fact the Ninth Legion, the date it leaves Britain is missing, is first recognised by antiquaries in the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, it's first tackled, but it's not by a Briton, it's by a German. The Germans, the leading Roman scholar of his day in the, the 1850s called Theodore Monson, who uh, writes a five-volume history of uh, the Roman world. And in this, he speculates that the Ninth Legion, because no one knows where it went, uh, disappeared in some kind of uprising in the nor north of Britain, amongst the native tribe there called the Brigantes, who stormed York, and which is where it was based, and wiped the Legion out. There's no evidence of that at all, by the way. <laughs> not then, not now. Um, and that's also one of the main problems you have with the story of the Ninth Legion. There's very little hard evidence. That's why I, had to, uh, that's why I chose to follow this detective story approach. Um, but then this story that Monson comes up with, that it was destroyed in the north of Britain in a revolt, 
takes takes off. And by the immediate Second World War, post-war period into the 1950s, it's become a sort of a really interesting subject of popular, let alone academic interest. And then you have this wonderful, amazing children's author, author Rosemary Sutcliffe, who writes a fantastical book, the, the, the Eagle of the Ninth, 1952, her second book, which becomes an international bestseller. It's not British. It's an international bestseller. Rosemary Sutcliffe's book then sparks international interest such that by say a decade ago you have back-to-back two hollywood blockbusters coming out with the eagle and the centurion um uh, the latter with michael fassbender the former with channing tatum who are which are both blockbusters at the block box office to make huge amounts of money so it's, it's a global phenomenon and what's very interesting actually my friend is that when i've been promoting this book I've been doing it globally. I've got a strong following on, on social media at Simon Elliott's 20, if you want to follow me on Twitter. And um, the interest is, wor- is worldwide, genuinely is worldwide. Um, in fact, it's very timely we're talking because only yesterday I checked on Amazon and um, the book is, at the moment, it's gone back to being the Amazon number one bestseller globally wow. in ancient military history. So it keeps going back. So therefore, people are genuinely interested in the story. And it's not in the UK, it's around the world. Bear in mind, the Roman Empire was a huge, huge organization which had to be administered. So it was in no way feasible for the Romans to be able to uh, micromanage the day-to-day lives of all of their citizens. So effectively, from my research, I think that if you're in the Roman world, if you're a Roman citizen, not a slave, if you're a Roman citizen anywhere in the empire, providing you're tipped your hat to the imperial cult, said, you know, yes, I believe the emperor is a god, and provided you pay your taxes, then you could get on with your life however you wished. To that point, near where I live, actually, uh, in the Medway Valley, a wonderful curse scroll has been found. A curse scroll is a small piece of lead on which someone's written down a curse against somebody they don't like and thrown it as a voting offering in, in a religious place. So if you steal my coat, and I think it's you but can't prove it, I'll write your name down on this lead curse scroll, throw it against the temple, and hopefully you'll be cursed. That's the way it works. Now, on this curse scroll found in the Medway Valley, there are 14 names on it dating to the middle of the second century. And of those 14 names, so that's a lot of coats being nicked, of those 14 names, seven are in Latin. So this is at the height of Roman Britain, seven of the individuals choosing to specifically portray themselves through their name as Roman. Seven of them are in Brythonic, which is native British. So half of them deliberately choose not to style themselves as Roman, and yet there they are living comfortably side by side with people who do. And that to me is very Roman. Tip your hat to the imperial cult, pay your taxes, get on with your life. You know, there's a cartoon that I saw, and I I like to believe it was in the New Yorker, but it showed a Roman uh, squad marching down a road, and they're just going off into the distance, and it showed the native people holding up uh, 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 facades of Roman temples and houses and villas, and they're holding it up. And behind the fake facades are, are, the, uh, uh, are the huts that they normally live in. And two, <laughs> nati- two natives are looking around the fake facade, and, and one of them says to the other, do you think they bought it? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, which which I, 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 just, I just thought, you know, you talk about giving the Romans their due, and they're still living their lives. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a little bit in that direction. But anyway, could you just tell me something a little about yourself? Because you went back and you, 
I, I don't know when you went to get your doctorate, but uh, uh, did you go, were you working as a defense writer and then you decided to go back and study the ancient world? Or was that something you started as a young, fairly young man? Or did you go back as an older student? Or what did you decide to do? It's the latter, actually, as an older student. I, I, um, I was a journalist, moved into doing public relations and communications. That was in the middle of the 1990s. Ended up running major communications businesses in the city of London, Decided that I wanted to go back to um, um, academia in my 40s. Sequentially did a master's degree in war studies from KCL, then a master's degree in archaeology from UCL, and then segued straight into doing a PhD. And I realized doing the PhD, you couldn't do that part-time and hold down a proper job as well, as it were a full-time job. So basically, I set my own small business up to pay the bills. Um, So since 20. 14, 15, I've been spending half my working day writing about the Romans. Today, writing about the Greeks, in actual fact, with a wet towel around my head, writing about the Peloponnesian War, let me tell you. Because <laughs> it goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, uh, and then the other part of my time doing um, uh, uh, sort of day job work, doing public relations. By the way, I'm curious about something. You have several pictures on, on behind you up on your shelf. Some yeah. of them look like military uniforms. Can you share who they are? Well, these, so you can see here. So firstly, that is all my books. That's my various degree certificates, all my books. Parts of a Roman villa. That's me at a rock festival a long time ago. Then you've got a series of 75 millimeter and 54 millimeter figures of various characters from the ancient world, starting with a Macedonian guard pikeman and ending with a looks like a Caesarian legionary. See that there? Yeah. And then going around here, these are various war games trophies that I've um, collected over the years because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a war gamer as well. I'm very very fortunate to be the the president of the Society of Ancients, which is the organisation in, in, internationally actually which represents people who play toy soldiers uh, and, and war games with um, uh, with a focus on the ancient world. So all these things here, these boxes are the various boxes I've got of toy soldiers. And downstairs, the dining room table, I have a very tolerant wife. It's actually covered in, um, covered in toy soldiers being painted. I'm currently painting a 15-millimeter Hunnic army. Oh, wow. Uh, when do you uh, think you might finish it? probably in the next month or so, because I want to use it in a competition. It's a very good armor to use because it's very difficult for your opponents to actually get hold of. So providing you time your deployment of your bow on cavalry, well, it's very it's very hard to, to defeat. As the Romans found themselves, of course. <laughs> Can you tell us about the Roman villa uh, that your project that you're involved with? I, I've been I've been involved in excavating a Roman villa uh for actually while you're there i've got some of the, some material here actually stay there oh you're very fortunate actually good question this is all unrehearsed by the way listener um so i've got a roman villa i've been helping excavate since 2014 in the medway valley uh and some of the materials include this so anybody who knows their archaeology that if you don't it just looks like a piece of tile so as an archaeologist, we call anything that's made CBM, ceramic building material. So a brick is a CBM. <laughs> However, this is a box flutile from the inside of a Roman wall. Hmm. This pattern here is what adheres it to the wall. In fact, it's that way. Adheres it to the wall, and it's hollow and square. 
And so the air comes up through the middle from the hypercourse beneath the floor to heat the wall. So if you have one of these, just that little fragment, you've got a Roman villa. It's not an industrial site because it's nice. got underfloor heating. It's a Roman villa. I've got this here. This is beautiful. This is a piece of a mortarium. So this is actually, it looks like it's Eiffel lava, actually. So it's come all the way from sort of the Eiffel region in France. And that would have been sort of this size. So it's a huge mixing bowl, probably the, the central feature in the kitchen, which at some stage, somebody, let's say an unfortunate slave, dropped and it's smashed. And it's found its way into a rubbish pit. Uh, here. Oh, this is lovely. This is the rim of an amphora. So imagine this being like this. There's the top. And then this is one of the handles that goes down the side. Think of your asterisk to Gaul. That's the rim, which means it's having elite goods imported, where it could be could be wine from France, could be garum fish sauce from um, Spain, it could be olive oil from the Eastern Mediterranean. This is a piece of Roman roof tile. It's called a tegula. So it's got a flange on one side sits next to another with a flange on that side. And so they form a seal, which is then covered over with a curved tile called an imbrex. And this is a piece of an imbrex, the curved tile that goes over the top. So there you go. Lots of Roman material. So yes, there you go. You did ask about my Roman villa. I came prepared. <laughs> it's near a place called Wateringbury on the River Medway in uh, Kent. And we have an annual open day. So it's, it's very much... Uh, a public uh, event we, we we invite anybody who wants to come and dig with us to come along and we'll train them up as well so it's it's, it's the exact opposite of exclusive it's about as public as you can get uh -huh. what's the nearest highway the nearest highway is the, the nearest sort of the nearest motorway is going to be the m20 so basically if you head to maidstone you're within a cab ride distance from maidstone uh, east railway station the name of your book is Roman Britain's Missing Legion, What Really Happened to the Ninth Hispania, the Soldiers of the Ninth. Do you believe they were recruited from the Hispania region, or do you think that they were a mixture? They were a mixture. The name is nothing to do with where they came from. The name is where they fought well. It's called a cognomen. It's a nickname. So, for example, Gaius Julius Caesar, the Caesar bit that we know him by today, is a cognomen. It's a nickname that the family acquired two to three hundred years earlier, well, two hundred years earlier, in the Second Punic War, when one of his forebears, two hundred years earlier, killed single-handedly, allegedly, a Carthaginian elephant. Now, the Carthaginian word, the Punic word for elephant, is Kaiser. So, in Roman, with the C replacing the K, it becomes Caesar. So, Julius Caesar means Julius M Elephant, which I think is beautiful when you think about it because you go all full circle with Kaiser Bill. Actually, he would never have known that it actually means Elephant Bill or Tsar Nicholas II, Elephant Nicholas II. In the same way, moving away from being vaguely historically facetious, but it's true, in the same way, uh, if you were to look at the Ninth Legion, it was originally not called Hispana at all. It's called Macedonica because it fought very well in uh, the Battle of Philippi where um, Octavian uh, and Mark Antony defeated uh, Brutus and Cassius and some of the liberators. And, there, and that was in Macedonia, so it was called Macedonica. Then it fought very well later in uh, Augustus as, as he was by now the emperor 
Cantabrian Wars in northern Spain. So it got the nickname Hispaniensis. And then it got the nickname of a nickname because the Hispaniensis was changed to Hispana because Hispaniensis was a bit too long to remember. So basically, Hispana is a nickname. Now, to your very important question where it came from, where the recruits came from, anywhere across the empire. We do know, though, it heavily recruited in North Africa and in Spain. In regards to the ninth, what do you think would be the dream find in regards to uh, settling on this? Do you think finding a battlefield filled with bits of armor and swords or a, 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 some account that went uh, sitting in the Vatican that uh, got swept up in record keeping? I mean, what is there something additional that would really uh, decide the fate? Two things. One... One history that is exactly your point, you know, a record in the Vatican saying that it disappeared then because of this. Um, so that uh, the stats, the smoking gun in terms of history, I think the smoking gun in terms of archaeology will be a burial pit. Because if you're looking at 5,500 men being massacred in enemy territory, um, I don't think that the native Britons, there's, there's clearly no love lost between the native Britons in the far north of Britain and the Romans. Indeed, the Britons in the north. And the Romans generally remember the, the Romans had a nickname that we've seen in the Vindolanda tablet for uh, the local Brigantes, Britons. And this is in the province, remember, who they, they call them Briticuli, which means nasty little Britain. So there's no loss, love lost either way. So if you've got 5,000 men massacred, you don't want to leave them in the open because of um, any health issues. But by the same token, you're not going to give them a, a, a good burial. So you'll just put them in a big burial pit. So I think a burial pit with lots of uh, Roman archaeological finds in would be the, the main tell, a series of burial pits, the main tell uh, in terms of the archaeological record. I seem to remember a newspaper article a while back uh, that they found a pit uh, with nothing but uh, decapitated bodies or rather skeletons. They thought that they were either uh, prisoners of war captured or um, or gladiators that were punished. Uh, gladiators were valuable, so I doubt it. But it just uh, every once in a while they seem to run across something like that. But uh, a a, bo a body uh, a, a pit of bodies of decapitated heads that they can trace back to Roman times. I think it was found in Britain, but I'm not sure. But uh, that that to me is um, an amazing thing. How is the book selling? The book is selling exceptionally well. Um, uh, it's Because there's so much public interest in the story in itself, uh, it's generated a huge amount of interest with articles about it in national newspapers, in, in uh, national broadcast media, international broadcast media. So the book uh, is selling exceptionally well and will be going to reprint. And I'm currently negotiating with the publisher to do an audiobook version as well so at the moment it's available in the initial hardback it's going to be available with a reprint in the initial hardback it's available on kindle it will be available later this year in paperback and then hopefully at the same time as an audiobook because it's just generated so much interest i'm talking to, I'm, I'm actually in negotiations with television channels to do prime time television programs about it i mean the ninth legion story is more game of thrones than game of thrones it's more tolkien than Tolkien, you know, a legion lost in the mists of the north, disappearing mysteriously from history. There was even a Doctor Who episode made about the fate of the Ninth Legion. I mean, what better accolade can you have than that? Do you have a favorite uh, bit out of this story of uh, 
something that just uh, piques your interest to no end in regards to the ninth? Of all the hypotheses, aspects of all of them are well known. Putting all the components of each hypothesis together has been insightful and new. However, one hypothesis is very new, and this is the hypothesis about the Ninth Legion being lost in the south of Britain, where the speculation in the hypothesis is that it was involved in an insurrection in London, either against or for the new Emperor Hadrian at the time he acceded the throne in 117 AD. To your point about Boris bodies buried without skulls that was in york by the way and later it's late it's late later in this period in london one of the pieces of evidence we're studying which was probably going to be a key component actually of the television programs that we're talking about is the finding of about 300 or more beheaded skulls and by the way they're only the ones that have been found in the archaeological records so you can extrapolate how many more are down there and they're found in the upper reaches of a, a stream in London called the Walbrook, which bisects the city of London in half. And it's to the north of London, within the Roman town boundary, where these have been found in tributaries, where they've just been thrown away. Now, to the Romans, um, dealing appropriately with the dead was very, 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 very important. Because this was a very superstitious people who believed, you know, in, in aspects of magic and things like that as well as uh, as um, medicine, but they also believed that they believed totally in the supernatural. And, and therefore, they took great, paid, um, they made a great effort to bury the dead appropriately. You do not throw away the beheaded heads, skulls, of hundreds and hundreds of people lightly. It's done for a very deliberate reason. And the speculation is here, you have basically the legionaries of the ninth either being beheaded after a failure of a rebellion or being beheaded by the rebels having failed to put them down and their bodies being discarded. And it's one of a number of pieces of evidence. But that in particular inspired me to look further because there you have hard data. You've got the skulls from the archaeological record, which you can then scientifically analyse to work out where they came from and how they were killed. Now, we know they were killed by being beheaded. Many have got wounds on their heads as well, which didn't heal, so they've been involved in a fight. If you can then prove that these aren't the skulls of native Britons, there are hundreds, hundreds, remember. If these aren't the skulls of native Britons, but they're from, let's say, North Africa or Spain, then that goes some way for us to start a discussion about who these individuals were and why they were there. Were they all male? Yes, by the looks of it. Were they all physically fit? Yes, by the looks of it. Were they all in their young or prime of their life? Yes, by the looks of it. So it looks as though you're here, you have a military unit being butchered. And where was the location of this find? You seem to have called it. Uh, it's called the Walbrook Valley. So the Walbrook is a stream which cuts. If you go to the city of London, not the West End where the palaces are, but the city of London, it's the it's the the original Roman city where the financial city is today. It's the stream that cuts the uh, the Roman city in half, and it goes through the northern town boundary, which later became the city wall, uh, and that's where you find all these skulls. So they're not even being thrown away where the people are living; they're being cast away on wasteland. Normally, my work, as I mentioned, is on the Roman world. However, my next book coming out is in the middle of May, which is called Old Testament Warriors, which is everything you wanted to know about the warfare in the uh, biblical world from 9000 BC to around 550 BC with the arrival of the, the, the Achaemenid Persians. 
so so it's so all the way from the Sumerians and the Akkadians in Mesopotamia through to um, the Persians and everything in between. And I begin the book by talking about what warfare is, because as I've said, it's a history of warfare from 9000 BC. And I come up with a definition of warfare, which allows me to say that warfare began around 9000 BC. How can you designate that exact date? based on the archaeological record. So basically what I've done is I've defined warfare, uh, which to me is a conflict which involves at least one state. So you have to have what you and I would today call a state involved. And then I've looked at the archaeological record for evidence of a state being involved in conflict. And you can look at a variety of things there. The, the easiest one is a fortification. And if you go to pre-pottery Neolithic A Jericho, uh, around 8,600 BC, you have the first Neolithic, not the biblical walls, the Neolithic walls being built. And the Neolithic walls of Jericho then are a circuit that's around a kilometre long. It's about three metres high. It includes an integral five metre high tower and it's two metres thick. So it's a really sturdy fortification built in 8,600 BC. And within this five metre high tower, there is an integral staircase. So somebody has had the wit or some people have had the wit to get a stick and draw in the mud on the banks of the Dead Sea the design for the world's first wall circuit, defensive wall circuit, which includes an integral tower, which includes an integral staircase. That is when I argue by my own definition, yes. warfare began. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. And I, I wish you much luck in your endeavors. Thank you. I love talking to you. Thank you, my friend. Do me a favor. Stay in touch. I'm happy to support you. Oh, I, I will take care and I'll talk to you. Take care. Catch, catch you later, buddy. Bye.